great singing, and uh, Northridge, welcome, and Cactus Campus, welcome, and then those of you in the chapel and also at the venue, welcome. And so let's all bow together right now and pray, and then we've got some wonderful Christmas work to do uh, in His Word. Father, uh, thank you for this season. I know it's not always a joyful season for everybody tuning in here, uh, but it is a season, as we're going to see today, that is meant to give us a jolt of joy, uh, especially when we need it the most. And so, God, I pray for all of us, especially those who might have come in a bit discouraged, downcast, maybe even beat up this season, that as we focus a little on your joy, uh, it's so deeply tied to Jesus coming into this world that, uh, as Lewis would say, surprise us with joy. God, would you in our midst? And I pray this in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. So let me begin by asking you a question that I think I know the answer to for most of us, and it's this, have you ever given a gift to someone that was originally yours? Be honest, this is the house of God. We, we call it re-gifting, that's the phrase for it, and my guess is that most of us have done this, where you've had something that was yours, maybe it was a gift originally given to you, or simply something you've had for a while, but it still looks new and fresh, and so you wrap it up and you give it to somebody else. And here's your logic, it's flawless. They don't know, you don't care, no one's the wiser, and everybody wins. It's re-gifting, and it's very common in 21st century American life. And though some people think it's tacky, and it can be, uh, 31 years ago, Kim and I got married, and this was back in the days where, man, we got a lot of silver serving plates uh, for our wedding from people. And after about the third silver serving plate that we opened, I decided to look at what these looked like because they were in a box. And so I, I opened up the box and I pulled it out, and there was a tag on the inside that said, to Jim and Susan from Bob and Mary. <laughs> And I knew who all four of those players were, and I thought, busted right now. And so Kim and I wrapped it back up and gave it to somebody else. <laughs> you see, regifting can be tacky, but, but sometimes, and this is the point, uh, regifting something can be really powerful and even profound. As most of you know, I was uh, born back in the 1960s, and when I was 11 years old in the mid-70s, I, I got into rock music. It was much to the chagrin of my father. He wanted me to get into Mozart and to, you know, Beethoven and the classics, because that's what he listened to, and it did not work. I listened to that, and then I listened to the Rolling Stones, and I, I went left. And, and so I, I got into Stones and the Beatles and Elton John and all of that back in the 70s. And this was back before the days of digital music. This will date me for some of you younger folks, but there was only two ways to listen to music back then. That was either on the radio or they had these vinyl discs called records that you'd put on a turntable and they'd spin and the magic of electricity would produce a sound. And, and, and I had to buy every record that I owned. I had a paper route in order to make money. And by the time I was 11 years old in 1975, I had amassed over 30 records to listen to my music on. It was quite a record collection for a, a little guy. In my small hometown, one day I was visiting my friend Jim down the block, and he said, hey, you want to see something? And I said, sure. And we went into his older brother's room, and his older brother had an electric guitar. 
And I got to tell you, in my hometown, I had never met anybody that owned an electric guitar. It was quite a thing to see. And I said, can we pick it up? And he said, he's not here. So we picked it up and we started to strum it. I didn't know how to play guitar, but I really fell in love with this electric guitar. And so a couple days later, I went back to his house and I asked to see the older brother. And I said, would you be willing to sell me your electric guitar? And he said, well, how much money do you have? And I said, none. And uh, so that wasn't going to go very well. But I said, I do have some records because everybody wanted records. And he said, how many records do you have? And I said, just over 30. And he said, if you give me all of your records, I will give you this electric guitar. I agonized over that decision and decided eventually to do it because I really wanted this guitar. Nobody had one in my town. So I gave my entire record collection for this electric guitar. And as you can imagine, I was the buzz of the entire school. Jamie has an electric guitar. Never mind the fact that I didn't have an amplifier. My parents were glad about that. Never mind the fact that I didn't know how to play it. I would just sit there and look at it and strum it. It was my prized possession. At the end of that school year, sixth grade, my best friend Mike Peters was moving away. I've never talked to him since, would never see him again. His family was being relocated. And toward the end of that year, he said to me, like I said to Jim, would you be willing to sell me your electric guitar? And I said, sure, I've gotten my use out of it. How much money do you have? And like a sixth grader, he said, none. And I said, well, what do you have to trade for? And he started telling me all the things he had to trade for. And there were some good things that I wanted. Now, this was back in the days when parents also, you know, monitor their kids, I guess like today, very closely. So I couldn't just do that without asking dad's permission. And so I went to my dad and I said, dad, uh, Mike wants to trade my guitar for some other things. Can I do it? And I'll never forget what he said. It was a moment in time. He said, no, you may not trade your electric guitar. He said, but if you would like to, you may give it to Mike. And I was totally confused by that because that's not what I was looking for. I didn't want to give it to Mike. I already gave all my records for it. I wanted something else. So I walked away kind of dejected, you know, like the rich young ruler with Jesus who, you know, said, give half of what you own to the poor. And I I just thought, "I, I I don't know what to do with that. And I thought about it long and hard, and I really liked this guy, Mike. And so at the end of the year, I gave him my electric guitar. And now I was recordless and guitarless. And the only way I could listen to music was on the radio. Years later, when I became adult, I asked my dad once, do you remember that scene, you know, where you made me give or asked me to give away my electric guitar? He said, sure. And I said, why did you do that? And I loved his answer. He said, Jamie, when you were 11 years old, after that point in your life, you had never done anything that I would consider truly other-centered or sacrificial. Like most kids, you were selfish and everything you did was for yourself. And he said, I thought it was time that you learned to do something for somebody else that would cost you dearly, and this was an opportunity. And then he said, I was actually surprised that you did it, (laughs) because it was a lot to ask an 11-year-old kid, and I was proud of you for doing that. You see, sometimes re-gifting something can be a good and powerful thing. And so with this understanding in your head through that story, we are now ready to launch into the next installment of our Christmas series here in John 17. 
It's a great chapter that we're looking at this Christmas uh, here at Scottsdale Bible because the entire chapter is red letter. The entire chapter are the very words of Jesus. And you might remember, it's a prayer of Jesus. In fact, the longest recorded prayer that we have of Jesus as he's praying to the Father as he's heading into the last week of his life. And as we continue today in verses 13 to 19 of John 17, Jesus is going to visit a well-worn topic for you and I. It's the topic of joy. Now, I know how some of you think. You're thinking, man, joy again? Like you wrote a book on it. We talk about it all the time. Why are we talking about joy again? Here's why. Don't shoot the messenger. Amen? I'm not the one bringing it up again. Jesus is. In fact, check this out. The word joy appears eight times in the Gospel of John. This is interesting. Only once in the first half, in chapter 3, and then it appears seven times, all uttered by Jesus in chapters 15, 16, and 17. So this is the last time Jesus is going to mention joy, but like the other times we've looked at it, he's going to teach us, reveal to us some amazing things about joy. So three things in our time remaining we want to look at today about joy, Christmas, and this first thing we're going to look at follows this re-gifting theme and that story that I just told you, and here it is, and that is that Jesus tells us that joy is fully given by Jesus to us. I've worded that very carefully. I know it's a little bit of an awkward sentence, but just go with me on this. Joy is fully given by Jesus to you and me. So look with me at how Jesus begins this next section of his prayer. As you might remember, he is talking to God the Father, and he is praying for his disciples, which includes any of us who are his followers today. And look at what he says as he begins this next section in verse 13. This is a very important verse. He says, but now I come to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world so that they, my disciples and followers, now here it is, may have my joy made full in themselves. May have my joy full in themselves. Notice first that Jesus says that this is his joy. That's really important. If ever the word my was important, it's important here. Because what Jesus is telling us here is that the joy that he has had, watch this, as the eternally existent second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who also had now been on this earth for 33 years, that joy is going to be re-gifted to his followers. That should blow you away. And it's not a tacky regift like a silver plate, no. It's a powerful and profound regift like an 11 year old giving away his prized possession to a friend that he'll never see again. So, something that Jesus has, this indescribable joy, is given to his followers. You don't want to miss that. And then notice how it is given. This is likewise very important. Jesus says that this joy is given, that they will have my joy, and here it is, made full in themselves. I've called this message full for a reason, because the joy is made full in 
us, and that's a, that's a key and critical phrase. Now, I know sometimes I bore the snot out of you guys by going back to the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in. But there's a reason that I do that, and it's not to bore you. The reason I do it is because as Christians, we believe, as other Christians have for 2,000 years, that this book are the very words of God. Amen? All 66 books of the Bible have been preserved and recorded for us by God over time. And this is his love letter. It's his story. It's his will to you and I. And so when you study theology over the years, they teach you that every word in this book matters because God used the laws of grammar in the original languages to communicate to us his will. We call it verbal divine inspiration. So the Greek language that the New Testament was written in, the Hebrew language that the Old Testament was written in, is rather important because that's how God originally recorded it. And that's why they teach pastors to read those languages. Now, why is that important when it comes to his joy being made full? Here's why, and just try to follow me on this. That phrase, made full, is one word in the original Greek. It's a verb that means to fill. But you'll notice here that it's not being used in the sense of just to fill. It's being used in what we call a perfect tense with a passive voice. Now, what does that mean? The perfect tense means that something has already been completed in the past, but has a state of being in the present. That's why we see Jesus says that his joy has been made full because his joy is something that has occurred in the past. Again, he's had it for all of eternity, but it has a state of being present now for his believers. Isn't that kind of cool? I don't think that's boring. So the present or the perfect tense tells us something about how we translate this here into the English, made full. And then this will blow you away even more. It's in the passive voice. There's two voices that a verb can use in the Greek, an active voice or a passive voice. And an active voice is when the subject is doing the action, and a passive voice is when the action is being done upon the subject. So we are the subjects here because Jesus is giving us his joy. But notice because it's in the passive voice, the action is being done by somebody else, hint, hint, Jesus, and it's being done upon us. So a past action that has a state of being in the present and then a passive voice, meaning it's something being done to us, you can now see why it's translated, my joy made full in them. Now, if you're confused up to this point, I'm going to give you a great analogy that all of you are going to get that will forever seal this and help you understand what all this means when it comes to joy. And here's the analogy. Say after church today, uh, Cactus Venue Chapel and uh, Northridge, say after church today, uh, you are really hungry, which would probably be normal, and you want to go f uh, satiate your hunger. Now, Simplistically speaking, we all know that there are two options for you after church. The first option is to go to the grocery store, buy some ingredients, go home, fire up the stove, the grill, or the oven, and prepare your food and eat it. In other words, you are going to prepare your own meal. That would be one option. 
But there's another option for you because this is Scottsdale and Phoenix and there's quite a few restaurants here. So the other option would be for you to go to a restaurant, sit down, a server comes over and asks you what you want. You order, a cook prepares your food for you, a server brings it out and puts it in front of you. And the only thing you got to do is grab your utensils and put it in your mouth. In other words, you are served a meal that you did not prepare, somebody else did. So let's review. Two different ways to get satiated with food. One is you doing the action. The other is someone, someone else doing the action. One is active on your part. The other is passive on your part. Now here's the important question, going back to John 17. When it comes to getting joy, which scenario best describes what Jesus is telling us here? Scenario one or scenario two? You tell me. Scenario two. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that he is the one who satiates our soul with joy. It's the ultimate re-gift. He delivers it up to us just like we're sitting at a table in a restaurant about ready to eat a meal that we did not prepare. And the reason that this is so important is that this goes against the grain of everything you and I are taught by our world and our culture on how we are to get joy. You see, our world says, go out and find your own joy. Make your own destiny. Find your own sources of joy. You mix the ingredients together. You prepare it. You eat it. And eventually, you'll get your joy. Jesus says that won't work. And even if it does give you a little jolt of happiness, you and I both know it won't last. Amen? It's not going to work in the long run because you don't have it in you. Sorry to pop your bubble to create your own joy. You really don't. At least the kind of joy that God wants for you and for me. He says your best chance at getting joy is to cooperate with me and to receive the joy that I want to give or re-gift toward you. Now, maybe you can understand why the great hymn writer, Isaac Watts, who wrote a song that we sing every Christmas season that all of you know, says it this way. Isaac Watts says, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth, say this word with me, receive. Say it again, receive its king. In other words, that's what Christmas is about. God shows up on the scene complete with joy and hope flowing over in him, in Jesus, and his instructions to us are to receive what he brings into our lives. And when you do that, you let no more sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Joy is fully given by Jesus to us. That's how it works. Anything else is a placebo. Now, hang on to this, and we're going to explore in just a second here how we can tap into this joy that he has for us, because there are some things that we can do to cooperate with God. But before we get to that, I want you to notice a second thing that Jesus teaches us about joy here. And again, this one's going to blow us away as well, because it cuts against the grain of what our culture tells us. And it's this, that joy comes when we most need it. Joy comes when we most need it. 
Now, what do I mean by that? Because this is truly an amazing point that Jesus shows us. What Jesus is going to show us here is that joy does not come simply because your circumstances and everything going on in your life are great. He says, that's what our world says. Our world says you go out and make your own joy, and joy will come when the money is flowing, the kids are behaving, the health is good, the relatives are being nice, the job is satisfying, the anxiety and depression are at bay. That's how our world tries to find joy. Jesus is going to tell us right now that joy is actually given to us by him precisely when things aren't going well, when things are not going as planned. Let me show you what I mean. Let's read on in Jesus' prayer here, and let's look at a few more verses, and I think you're going to catch on here. Let's look at verses 13 again. We'll review that to verse 16 and then verse 18, and see if you can catch on what Jesus is trying to say here about joy and our circumstances. Let's review verse 13. He says, but now I come to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world so that they, my followers, may have my joy made full in themselves. And then he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I did not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even even as I am not of the world. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. Now, folks, is it just me? Or is there an awful lot of repetition here in Jesus' words? This is not insulting Jesus because he's doing this for a purpose. But let's dial into the repetition right now. Nine times, you can count it on your own later, I did. Nine times in five verses, he says, the world. And, And so obviously Jesus is trying to bring home a point here. And it centers around this idea of the world. So let's talk about that for a second. One of the first things you'll notice in Jesus' words here, and I'm not trying to be a downer, this is Jesus doing this, is that he's not using the word world in a very positive tone. Did you pick up on that? So like today, we use it really positively. I'm a person of the world. You know, I'm a world traveler. I mean, we use that word world really positively. Jesus isn't buying into that. No, what he's doing here, don't miss this, is he's contrasting the world with those who follow him. And he's saying the two are diametrically opposed to each other. And his logic here is somewhat zigzag, but once you catch it, it's really kind of instructive on what he's trying to say to us. Here's his logic. He says in these verses that, that we as his followers are in the world, but the world hates us. So we are really not of this world, even though we are in this world. And then he says that God doesn't want to take us out of this world, but he wants to keep us in this world. In fact, he even sends us deeper into the world. That's the flow and logic of what Jesus is saying here. And he's telling us all of this in the context of joy. Let's make sure we understand this idea of the world. How many of you have ever seen this bumper sticker on a car? Raise your hand if you've ever seen this. Many of you have. It's kind of become a very new and common bumper sticker for Christians. It's the letters N-O-T-W. I remember the first time I saw this a few years ago. I was driving down the road and I saw it. 
And, and again, you guys got to go with me on this. I haven't earned master's degree in divinity. I have read the Bible a lot, or I wouldn't be a teacher of the Bible. And I saw that, and I thought, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> and, 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 I, and, and it looked kind of goth, you know, to me, the way it's written there. So I thought, maybe there's something I'm missing here. So I went home, and, and I got on the Google, and I, and I typed in N-O-T-H, bumper sticker. And it came up as a Christian bumper sticker that stands for not of this world. And I thought, that's kind of cool. And I've learned since then that it's kind of used as a, a, a starting topic discussion, a, a subtle way to witness, you know, to tell somebody that as a follower of Jesus, that you're not of this world and that you're made for another place. It's called heaven. And that even now that you're here, you know, that your heart is tied somewhere else, you know, not of this world. And as I've wrestled with this over the years, because this comes right out of John 17, I, I smile because it's technically only half the story, right? I mean, it's hard to put all of it on a bumper sticker, but, but it's really not the full story. If you stop at just not of this world, you really don't understand what Jesus is saying. No, no to have the right bumper sticker, it would have to look like this. And it'd be kind of convoluted to put this on your car, so I'm not suggesting we do this, but you'd have to put down N-O-T-W and then an arrow with S-I-T-W plus T-W-H-U. And you all know what that stands for, not of this world, uh, but I'm still in the world and the world hates us. Now that's the complete picture, right? <laughs> I, I, it'd be really hard to explain that to your neighbor or coworker, right? Like, hey, what's that mean on your car? Well, not in this world, I'm still in the world and you all hate me, that's what it means, you know, and that's not a good witnessing technique. So let's just keep that one to ourselves. But, but here's the point that Jesus is making really clear. Now let's add all this up. Jesus is telling us here that things will not always go great, hardly ever, when you follow him in this fallen world of ours. Why? Because this world is not our home. It's not our ultimate place or destination. And the world does not regularly get excited about the things of God. Jesus couldn't be more clear about that. In fact, he started this whole prayer in the very last verse of John 16, the last chapter, with these words about the world. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. In this world that's not your home, this world is not, that is not friendly to the things of God. And then he says, you will have trouble. I've looked up that in the Greek for years. He's not saying that maybe you'll have trouble or that possibly you're going to have trouble or in the past you had trouble, but now you fix it all. No, it's like a future perfect tense, which simply means in this world, you're going to and right now are having trouble. In fact, I laughed at this in my study this week. I thought in a very real sense, John 16, is a promise. Put that in your Bible promise pocketbook, right? Next to all the other wonderful promises that you fall in love with. Well, here's one. In this world, you're going to have trouble. And yet, let's get off the negativity right now. What you don't want to miss is that right smack dab in the middle of this worldly battle, Jesus says he wants to give you his joy. Now, doesn't that blow you away? Joy in the journey, even in the battle, Joy when we least expect it. Joy when we most need it. And again, I know how some of you think, man, this is such a tall order. You're thinking right now, if you're really honest with yourselves, you're thinking, but Jamie, I go through lots of crud in this world and I don't always get joy. In fact, I don't really get it all that much, 
if at all. I mean, I believe and I try to remain faithful. I'm here in church today, but, but I, I don't get this joy you're talking about. Jesus has kind of failed me here. And we're going to wrap up in just a minute here by looking at some of the ways, now watch this, that you and I can posture our lives, that we can get in the pathway of this joy that Jesus wants to give us. Because there are some things that we can adjust in your life to get a bit more joy. But before we do that, you have to understand that one of the coolest things about this joy is that it's designed to actually come into your life when you least expect it, when you're most hurting, when you're most beat up, Again, as Lewis said so incredibly well, it's designed so that you're surprised by joy. This week, Kim and I were out uh, walking on our morning walk in the neighborhood we live in, and uh, we passed by a gentleman that I looked at, and I go, oh my gosh, I recognize him. And so I said his name, and he pulled out his, his ear pods. Everybody walks with those ear pods nowadays, and, and he uh, said hi, and we started talking. I haven't seen him in about five years He's a snowbird that comes to this church, and uh, we caught up just for a few minutes. It was great to see him, and then we were, we were on our way. As Kim and I were walking away, she said to me, there, there's more to that story. What, what gives? How do, how do you know him? And I said, well, it's a pretty amazing story. I, I said, five and a half years ago, I, I had not met him, and I, uh, the church got a call and said that he and his wife were in crisis at uh, Mayo Hospital, and, and would somebody come over? And usually I'm not the one that can do that. We have 45 pastors in the church and, and my schedule doesn't usually necessitate that. But, but that moment God had it so that I was the one and I said, well, I'm on my way. So I got to Mayo there and I met his wife and, uh, and it was surely crisis time. She had, was just in her late 50s, early 60s and she had been diagnosed out of nowhere. They didn't see this coming with uh, stage four terminal lung cancer. And Mayo essentially said, you're not going home. It's palliative care. We're going to keep you comfortable, but you're, you're going to die here. And uh, it's going to be within the next week or two. And so I sat down to help them process this information. And I'll never forget what she said to me. It was the most amazing thing I've, I've probably heard in a very long time. She said, you know, Jamie, I've been listening to you to preach for, you know, a few years now. We're snowbirds and we're here every winter. And she said, I, I'm in corporate business. I, I've been very successful I am uh, a very, very type A, high control person. And when I've heard you talk about joy and peace in the past, I thought to myself, you know, when my time comes to die, there is no way I'm going to have that. I'm just way too much of a control person. I panic when things get out of control. And she said, I just have, you know, prayed to God that when my time comes, let me at least hang on, but it's going to be really hard for me. And she said, yet when I came in here and they gave me this news, I, I could hardly explain it to you. She said, but I am so at peace and this joy is washing over me that I never thought possible. And, and I want to talk to you about heaven and Jesus and, and, and what's next. I, I, folks, if, if I have heard that once, I, I've heard it a dozen times. But where those of us who tend to doubt this joy and peace that God wants to give. Don't ever do that. You never know what he's going to give you. And again, if it was up to you to manufacture it, well then, so be it. But it's not. That's why point one is so important. It's his ball game. It's his show. You're just along for the ride. And he wants to re-gift to you this joy. And the cool thing about it is that unlike what the world thinks, it comes to you when you most need it. But you can't control that. 
but he's good for giving it. It's an amazing truism about Jesus's joy. Now, once we understand all of this, the question becomes, are there, however, some things we can do? Are there ways we can posture our lives? To use our analogy from before, are there certain restaurants we can go into? Are there certain tables we can sit at? Are there certain menus that we can order from, if you will, that will stand the best chance of being delivered up Jesus's joy to us? And what's the answer to that? Yes. And here it is in principle form. It's the final thing that Jesus shares with us about joy here in this section of his prayer. And I'm just going to let you know, this is so incredibly important. Many people, including most Christians, miss this. But it's a core principle that theologians have known for years because Jesus teaches it to us about joy. And here it is. And that is that joy is a byproduct of seemingly unconnected actions. Let me repeat that. Joy, the way it works, is a byproduct. It's a result. It comes after other seemingly unconnected actions that you and I commit or do. In other words, don't miss this, joy does not come from doggedly focusing on joy and trying with all of our might to get it. You won't find it that way. No, it comes through focusing on other things, seemingly unconnected things, that will produce joy, this re-gift that comes from Jesus. And again, I didn't make this stuff up. Jesus is going to show us this in black and white in a second here. But look at how C.S. Lewis put it in his book, Surprised by Joy. I love this quote. He says, joy is a byproduct. Its very existence presupposes that you desire not it, but something other and outer. And folks, he is right. And Jesus affirms this to us in spades. So one last time, let's look at what Jesus says to us in this prayer of his, and then we'll add just a couple of things that the rest of the Bible says as well, so we have a complete picture. But first, notice what Jesus says in this passage here. He's still talking to God the Father. He's still talking about us. And in verses 14, 17, and 19, he says this. He says, I have given them, his followers, your, the Father's word. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. So once again, noting the repetition here, because Jesus is trying to drive home a point, Jesus mentions five times in these three verses, the word and truth, and then he mentions three times this idea of sanctity. So right on the coattails of promising us his joy, he prays that you and I would be men and women of the word who know the truth and that we would then live sanctified lives, which simply means set apart from the world. Remember that discussion on the world and all the stuff that pulls us down around us. And, and so make the connection here, gang, because it's obvious that Jesus is doing this, that joy is a byproduct of you and I living set apart lives, not getting caught up in all the materialism and the trappings and the inappropriate relationships and the unchecked addictions and the runaway emotions and the scores of other things that drag us down, while then simultaneously 
and positively transforming our thinking according to God's truth and his word. Could it be that joy comes from these two seemingly unconnected areas of sanctity or holiness and the word or truth? I think so. Because here's what you and I both know by experiences, and I talked a little bit about this last week, and that is the most miserable Christians are those that have one foot in and one foot out. Amen? They're the most miserable. First Corinthians 3 makes it really clear. They might narrowly escape the flames, but they're not doing too well in building their spiritual house. And again, this might hit you between the eyes, and if it does, I'm sorry. It's the truth. This is God's house. <laughs> Could it be that some of us don't have joy? Not because we don't go to church or maybe give some money or what have you. We don't have joy because we're still playing games, and we have one foot in, and we have one foot out, and we try to find joy over here in the world and manufacturing ourselves and all that, but then we also want to have a little church thing and Jesus over here And he says, until you sanctify your life, until you're all in, set apart for him, and and until you become a man or woman of the word, devouring every word that comes out of his mouth that's been recorded for us, he basically says, don't expect joy. Because joy is a byproduct (laughs) of seemingly unconnected actions. And Jesus tells us at top on the list are his word and and this idea of holiness. Uh, But then there's more. We don't have time to plumb the depths of these today, but simply notice a few other seemingly unconnected actions that the Bible links with fullness and joy. I had fun with this this week. I looked up the Greek word kara, which is the word joy, and then I looked up that word fullness that appears in John 17, that there's joy may be made full in them. And I looked up both those Greek words, and I asked myself, do they appear anywhere else in the Bible in the same sentence? And what I found was pretty cool. Look at the first thing. Uh, in Romans 15, verse 13, Uh, Paul says, now may the God of hope fill you, same word in John 17, fill you with all joy, kara, that's the Greek word kara, and peace in believing so that you may abound by, in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So so basically what he's saying here is that this filling of joy, now don't miss this, comes when your faith and trust in him is strong. So the reason that some of us don't have joy is because, again, we got one foot in and one foot out. We're still trying to hang on to things over here, and we haven't fully trusted him over here. And again, you'll be the most miserable of Christians if you live like that. He reserves his joy for those of us who put ourselves in the pathway of his blessing through faith and trust in him. So you got the word, you got holiness, you got believing. Now I warn you, this next one is really challenging for some of you, but let's just go with what the Bible says. It's fellowship, the idea of being with other believers. Did you know that that's linked with this fullness of joy? Uh, First, 2 Timothy 1, verses 4 and 5, Paul says to Timothy, recalling your tears, I long to see you and be with you so that I may be filled with Joy, same word in John 17, fullness of joy. He says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. So Paul was basically saying that part of the fullness of his own joy only came when he was in intimate community with other believers. 
So again, could it be that some of us who have given up on others in the church because they're hypocrites and we don't like them and they're not like us, I get it, I get it. That's all might be true. But if you give up on ever trying to find intimate connections with other brothers and sisters in Christ, don't complain that you have no joy because the joy comes through fellowship. So you got faith, you got fellowship, and then you'll like this one, uh, joy comes through fruitfulness. So Acts 13 is one big long chapter of, of the original apostles, Apostle Paul and his crew, just serving God all through Asia Minor. Man, they're starting churches and they're preaching the gospel and the world hates them and all that, but, but there's all this fruitfulness. And it says at the very end of the chapter, as it caps, caps it off, it says, and the disciples were continually filled with joy. So could it be that, 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 that this joy comes when we are serving God in such a way that, man, there's just fruit flowing everywhere? It comes through serving in such a way that you see fruit. You get the point. Over and over again, the Bible links certain activities that we engage in, everything from truth to holiness to, to faith to fellowship to fruitfulness to this joy that Jesus so desperately wants to give us. Joy is a byproduct. It doesn't come from find, trying to seek it yourself. It, it comes from what Lewis calls these other and outer activities. Do these, and, and you'll get the re-gift of joy. Now, one last thought, and I'll pray. And I've shared this thought with you before, but every time I talk about joy, it, it's worth noting. I've been talking to you the last 40 minutes about joy, <laughs> and, and, and the guy that's been talking to you does not naturally have joy. I know some of you know that like black and white. You're going, well, Jamie, that's obvious that you don't have joy. I mean, you know, and people that know me know that I fight for every ounce of joy I get. I'm an intense personality. I, I'm type A. I'm driven. I'm more of a leader. And, and, and so all of that, if you know that type, they don't always tend to be the most joyous people. They're just driven people. And yet 40 years now into my trust in Jesus, man, he's been chipping away at my character so much. And I can say this, I have more joy now than I ever have. Every ounce of it's been hard won, but every ounce of it's been given to me by Jesus. But it's also been because I place myself in this pathway on a regular basis. When I wake up and the joy's not flowing, man, I know it's time to get holy, to get in his word, to get faith-filled, to get fruitful, to get with other believers. And many times that really does work. They, they give me joy. It also helps that I'm married to the most joyful woman on planet Earth. She wakes up happy. She goes to bed happy. It's nauseating. I mean, I'm telling you, the woman is just a, a joyful, joyful woman. But she also challenges me and, and keeps me focused on this idea of joy. And, and again, you get it through focusing on the Jesus who wants to give you joy. Here's my point. If it can work for me, I promise you it can work for you. Let's get some joy this Christmas. Father, thank you for this Christmas message from Jesus that joy can and should be ours. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's a hallmark that we know him. And Lord, there's some of us here that if truth be known, man, we struggle with this as I do at times. We struggle with that, that feeling of contentment and, and happiness that we know Jesus. And sometimes the, the weeds of the world and the weight of the world just crush us and, and can tend to rob us of our joy. No more, Father. That may today, from what we learned, may we just lean in deeper to you. Lean in deeper to the one who wants to re-gift joy to us. Lean into the one who wants to give us joy when we least expect it. Lean into you who wants to give us joy if we place ourselves in the pathway of your joy. And so we're going to do that, Father. 
And we thank you for your goodness and for your grace to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.